right. Welcome back, one and all, to Vernacular Podcast. It's time for another one of our quarterly read, watch, listen podcasts. And I'm joined across the table by my co-host and better half, the beautiful, the inimitable Sally. Thank you. And on the Zoom screen, because... This is our first screen call. In a while. We used to do screens back in the way back in the early days a of the podcast. A long time ago. It's been our, a while. Our normal thinking is that we don't have the screen, so we preserve bandwidth. But since everybody is now just preaching the gospel of Zoom, <laughs> we decided we'd try to, to do that as well for a podcast. And so we invited Elena on the podcast to come on and talk with us. We're staring at Elena's face right now via the wonders of Zoom and uh, want to welcome her to the podcast. So Elena, welcome to Vernacular. Thank you. I would like to point out, though, that I heard a contrary uh, description of Zoom. Someone said that the mark of the beast spells Zoom. So gospel <laughs> or mark of the beast, up to you. Well, I didn't say it was an authentic so gospel. Funny. I just said that people were preaching the gospel. So, so those two views are not incompatible. I will say that. It does seem like Zoom is better than Skype. So, Well, speaking of... Well, what's that? I am Zoomed. I have to say I am a little bit Zoomed out Although it's always a delight to see you guys, but yes, for work. it will, it will be amazing when we actually get to go back to doing live and in person, which by the way, if you guys and I are the next time you guys and I are live and in person together, we are supposed to uh, go back and try one of those uh, whiskey pots that we talked oh, about that's yes, right. times yes. I was on the podcast. Yep. Remember? Yes. Yep. Of course. How, how could I forget? How could I forget? Yep. Um, I too am zoomed out, Elena. Uh, we use Zoom for my work, and unfortunately, my employer has been trying to bring Zoom on board as standard desktop technology for about six months now. So, I've been seeing the emails about the coming Zoom apocalypse, and uh, and it's just been it's just been a harbinger of doom every time it pops in my inbox. <laughs> And so it was like, it was just, I, I kid you not, it was rolled out as like an official, you know, officially accepted certified piece of software for use like two weeks before the, uh, the, the COVID-19 stuff broke. How prescient. Yeah. How prescient would be one word for it. Uh, and so we've been zooming a lot and I've just gotten to the point where I just slide my little camera cover shut on the zoom calls. Sure. Cause I'm like, you guys do not need to see me and yeah. I definitely don't need to see you. Yeah. We can have this conversation as if we're on the phone, and I'm fine with that. This is my first Zoom call. Yeah. Uh, you did Google Meet the other day, though, which was interesting. I, I've never done I a did. Google Meet. Yes. I've done Google Hangouts, but Meet is the like yes. enterprise G Suite version. Yeah, you have to be invited. Yeah, it's invite only. Yeah. Very elite. Very elite. How did it feel to be invited to Google Meet? Oh, it was, it was uh, special. This conversation is special. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> all right, so Sorry. reading. So we are going to start with a book that we all read, which is a book of 31 short stories by Flannery O'Connor, the complete short stories of Flannery O'Connor. And we all read that over the past couple months, the past six weeks, dare I say Lent. <laughs> yes. And so we thought we would each share our one of our favorite stories because it is hard to choose a favorite and then maybe an honorable mention. And we don't have time to deep dive deep, but maybe we will on a future episode. Yeah. So for listeners who don't know much about Flannery O'Connor, um, I mean, I, I will be the first to confess that I'm not super well acquainted with her work. This is actually the first time, I mean, I'd read a few of her short stories here and there. This is the first time that I had sat down and read a lot of what Flannery has written. And I've ne definitely never read like a full biography. No, certainly not. So I'm, I'm certainly not pretending to be an expert at all, but, but everything I know about her and everything I've read by her, uh, I find to be 
very illuminating and I find her to be absolutely fascinating as a thinker, as a writer. She is a, uh, a I mean, certainly a great American writer. Uh, one of the greatest of the 20th century, I would dare contend, uh, although I'm not an English major, so, you know, we can, I'm not prepared to like defend that claim to the death, but she seems pretty great to me. Well, and I think she, while being a Catholic and Christian writer, she influences a lot of film and and books today. Yeah, I think you can see a lot of the, um, I mean, dare we call it a sense of humor that she has. Uh, you can yeah, see- Yeah, like dark comedy. Yeah, you can see that reflected in the works of people like the Coen brothers, who I think have uh, are certainly acquainted with her work and perhaps have modeled some of their own after hers. And a lot of that comes through in her short stories, which are simply fantastic. Uh, that would be one word to describe them. And one of my favorites from this whole list, because there are, you said 31, Sally? 31 I think so, short stories. yeah. Um, so this is a big- comprehensive uh volume that contains all of them it's not too long i mean 31 short stories it's it fits all in 550 pages or so um and it's really worth a read i think uh most of these short stories can be read in a sitting there are a couple that are longer uh there are some though that are you know 10 pages or less so pretty manageable overall um and the one i want to talk about today is called parker's back uh, and then I'm going to have an artificial, I mean, a, a an honorable mention <laughs> called the artificial N word um, that I'll that I'll read an excerpt from. Now I say N word. The N word appears very frequently in her writing, but I will say it's the South in what the 1950s. Is that Do you yes? Know, Elena? Is it oh before that? Yeah, 1940s. I mean, yeah. the first half of the 20th century. I mean, this is when she's she's writing them, right? right? So. Right. So yeah, and Sally, I know you're not saying that to defend her use of the word, no. But you're you're um, saying that to defend to to talk about the context in which she's writing, right? And she is, you know, part of the task of any writer, I think, unless you're just a complete fantasy writer. Part of the task of the writer is to document, and so she's documenting what is happening in the American South in that time. And, and she doesn't even do it necessarily objectively. I mean, I think there's definitely a trend that the people who use the N word do not fare well in her stories. Oh, I think that's absolutely. Uh, consistent uniform throughout every time the n-word comes up the character who's using it is not a good character right and is a character who is desperately in need of Prideful, some sort of self-righteous revelation yeah. yeah so she does not use it um as a as a good term at all in fact i would say she uses it almost as a signal yeah to the reader as soon as anybody uh mentions the n-word or I'm uses suspicious. the n-word yeah i mean you you know that that things are not gonna end well for that person or if they do end well it's only because they have a, a moment of grace uh, being infused into their lives that that is necessary. So speaking of that grace being infused, I want to talk about m one of my favorite stories. And again, there are several favorites in here, but I really liked the very first one that I read called Parker's Back. Now, Sally, you had read this before. So this was your recommendation that I start with it. And just to tell this, you know, to condense this story down to 60 seconds or so, you have a man named Parker. And Parker is kind of a, a rough and tumble guy, a real salt of the earth kind of man. Loves getting tattoos, kind of a personality quirk that he has. He's covered almost every inch of his body in tattoos, but not his back, notably, which is, you know, you'd think that's a pretty big, like, canvas-sized part of your body. That'd be a great place for a big, great tattoo, but he doesn't get anything on his back. He's kind of waiting for the right thing. He ends up... Well, actually, he says he says that he's never going to get a tattoo on his back because he can't see it, right. and he doesn't want to get a tattoo in a place that he can't see. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> so his back remains empty, uh, despite the fact that most of the rest of his body is covered up. Now, Parker falls in love with this girl named Sarah Ruth. Sarah Ruth is not what I would call uh, a salt-of-the-earth person. She's an uppity, self-righteous, uh, professing Christian 
who thinks that she knows everything about God and his will and divine judgment and sin and sin. Uh, and so they have a relationship and eventually marriage that I would not characterize as, um, you know, filled with uh, self-giving sacrificial love. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a marriage. And in the course of their relationship, um, there's several, several interesting things that happen, but to just get to the point of the story or the, the, the apex of the story, um, Parker gets a tattoo on his back. He finally opts for one. He goes to a tattoo parlor and he's leafing through. Doesn't he do it because he wants to make a point to her? Yeah. Yeah. So they have a, he wants her attention. Right. So, yeah. so they like routinely argue. Right. And he wants her attention. He, she gives no approval of him. Um, no affirmation. She's always berating him. So he wants something finally that he can hold up as like, um, I don't know, as a, a something valuable about him. Um, of course, he's she'll never appreciate anything to his wife either. Yeah, but he feels he doesn't feel any appreciation or affection from her. No, not none whatsoever. I mean, and she basically thinks he's a godless heathen because of the way that he's adorned his body in these, uh, you know, blasphemous images. And they're not really blasphemous, but she thinks they are. Uh, you know, profane, I guess I should say, profane images. And, uh, you know, the things that he does in life, she doesn't approve of and thinks that that they uh, all amount to sin and rebellion against God. So, yeah, he goes to the tattoo parlor and he's leafing through some pictures. And there's a part of the story where he's, he's you know, confronting or looking at all of these various images of Christ in the book itself. Um, and so it, uh, he's going through, and I'll see if I can find the exact line, but there's like, you know, the kind of soft looking Jesus and there's like, you know, Jesus, the physician, and none of these really grip him. And then he comes across this um, icon that's, it's an Eastern icon, ancient church icon called um, Pantocrator. Um, I think it's described in the story as uh, Byzantine Christ. And um, he's just so totally taken by this. Like he's just gripped by it. And I'm thinking when I tell this story, I'm thinking of my conversation with Chandler on the podcast two weeks ago where I told a story about Nighthawks, this painting that I have hanging up in my study by Edward Hopper, and how my experience looking at this, it was not probably quite as strong as uh, Parker looking at Pantocrator, but but there was something that gripped me about that painting. And so similarly with him, there's something that just absolutely grips him, and he, he needs to have that. So he insists on getting it like right there, right then. Full back tattoo, yeah. Full back tattoo, the whole thing. And he's uh, he's just totally taken by it. I don't even think I would say proud of it, but he's just... Um, very glad to have this tattoo now. He's found the perfect thing for his back, even though he can't see it. And then he uh, returns home and tries to show this to Sarah Ruth, and indeed he does show it to Sarah Ruth. And the amazing thing is that Sarah Ruth doesn't recognize it. She uh, she says that that's not God, whatever that is. Uh, I think she also says that God is spirit. Um, God's not man. Uh, and so the interesting thing is, Parker, who to this point in the story has struck the reader perhaps, certainly Sarah Ruth, as the godless heathen who has no relationship with Jesus, is actually the one who can recognize Jesus in his full manhood and divinity. In fact, if you look at this Eastern icon, uh, one of his eyes seems to be looking directly at the viewer, and the other is kind of detached, uh, and that is symbolic of the dual nature of Jesus, God and man. And Parker is is gripped by that. Parker acknowledges the kind of the two the two eyes looking slightly different directions, etc., And he is so taken in by this portrayal of the incarnate Christ, God made flesh that he wants us on his back. And Sarah Ruth can't even handle it. She can't, she can't, uh, can't recognize that. Um, so Doesn't she it end with the burning bush. 
Yeah, so she she ends up hitting him on the back, right? She she you know whacks Christ. So she, um, in that sense, as we as we just you know have reflected on the crucifixion, uh, she takes on the role of the Romans in like literally flogging Christ, right? Scourging Christ at the pillar, and then she ends up leaving the house. And yeah, it does end with this sort of burning bush imagery as she sort of seems to have this moment of cathartic grace, perhaps underneath a, a bush or a tree. Uh, and that's the end of the story, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So really remarkable. Love that. That is just a, a sampling of the type of power that Flannery O'Connor can convey in her short stories. In just a few pages. Yeah. And that that one is... is um, Perhaps a bit on the nose, and I don't say that as a critique, but just as like a point of comparison to other stories. Other times I read her stories, and I'm I'm still like, what happened? I don't yeah, what exactly was I supposed to take understand away from that? this. <laughs> uh, some some in particular are are especially like that. But I do before I uh, hand the mic off here to uh, one of you, I just want to read this excerpt from uh, the Artificial N Word. That's the title of the short story that I'm about to read from here. And uh, I won't give you the whole story. It would take too long. But this is another very good short story, I think. Um, and I think it's one that kind of like winds along and you're not exactly sure where it's going. Yes. And then you're boom, hit with what you're about to read. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, and it, it, that's not uncommon with her stories, which is pretty great. Um, but let me uh, let me just read this paragraph because I just talked about her sort of her, her power, her ability to craft a story. Now this, I think, will convey some of her ability with prose, which is just spectacular. Mr. Head, that's the main character in this story. Mr. Head stood very still and felt the action of mercy touch him again. But this time he knew that there were no words in the world that could name it. He understood that it grew out of agony, which is not denied to any man and which is given in strange ways to children. He understood it was all a man could carry into death to give his maker. And he suddenly burned with shame that he had so little of it to take with him. He stood appalled, judging himself with the thoroughness of God while the action of mercy covered his pride like a flame and consumed it. He had never thought himself a great sinner before, but he saw now that his true depravity had been hidden from him lest it cause him despair. He realized that he was forgiven for sins from the beginning of time, when he had conceived in his own heart the sin of Adam, until the present, when he had denied poor Nelson. He saw that no sin was too monstrous for him to claim as his own, and since God loved in proportion as he forgave, he felt ready at that instant to enter paradise." Boom. Yeah. She is amazing. Amazing. Oh it's gosh. incredible. It's incredible. I should mention too. Oh, Flannery. Listeners probably know this, but Flannery sadly died at the age of 39 prematurely due to lupus. She and had she, a very painful life too. She very. had a lot of pain later in her years. And she was pretty isolated. She had to live with her mother, right? She was, she went away to school yep. and never, then she had to yeah. come back. She was never married. Um, so a, a couple anecdotes, uh, was it Thomas Merton who she had kind of a sweet little relationship with? Yep. Um, she was kind of reading his stuff as he was reading her stuff. Oh, that's cool. Um, he, his, uh, the monastery that he lived in was in rural Kentucky. She was in oh, that's um, right. rural Georgia. So they had, they had some points of connection but um yeah they kind of had this uh a, a deep respect for each other that's awesome i can see that i also heard that t.s Eliot was given some of her work to read and he was like no no thanks no, no i think you read it i think he was i think he was offered to meet her yeah yeah to like someone talk with like, her about someone it someone was like i can put you in touch with flannery o'connor if you'd like yeah. and he was like nah i'm good yeah <laughs> okay okay all right. Um, I've talked long enough about Flannery. Okay. Elena, do you want to go or do you want me to? Oh my gosh. Sure. Yeah, I can go. Um, 
Wow. So my my favorite Flannery story depends on the day. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah. One of my favorites is The River, which is this beautiful oh. story of this little boy who's desperate for transformation in his life. That one was so sad. Um, so sad. Oh, I love it so much. Um, yeah. Sad, but so beautiful. Um, another one of my favorites is um, The Displaced Person, which is one of the longer ones. But um, so Flannery has, uh, she had an affinity for peacocks, which I definitely, uh, I mean, I do too. And I suppose to some extent that's, um, I, I got that from her, but for her, um, they, they kind of, they, re, they represent a, a mixture of, um, uh, I mean, the glory of God for one, there's this beautiful scene in, um, the, in uh, the displaced person where this priest is just awestruck by this peacock revealing its uh, its tail feathers and representing this tr- the transfiguration to him. But um, so I just have a, I would have to say if I gave an honorable mention for today, it would be the displaced person. Um, but the my, the story that I, I feel like was striking me most today is called a temple of the Holy Ghost. Um, which is about a little girl who's kind of, uh, um, she's prideful, um, she's kind of isolated, and her two cousins come to visit. And these are two girls who are like teenagers, they're a little bit older, and um, they are, I guess I resonate with this little girl, because these two girls who come to, to stay with her, they go to school to convent because their parents are afraid that if they go to a normal school, they'll just spend all their time with boys. They're silly. They're all the things that I despised as a kid. They just care about <laughs> so their appearance. Yes. They care about their appearance. They care about boys. Um, and, uh, and, but they, they're running around the house referring, jokingly referring to each other as temple one and temple two. And the story behind that is that, one of the sisters at the convent told them that if they were ever in the backseat of a car with a boy and he starts to come on too aggressively, then she's supposed to say, no, you cannot touch me. I am a temple of the Holy Ghost. And so these girls just think that that's a riot. So they re- they walk around referring to each other as temple one and temple two. But the little girl in the story, she, she is really struck by this. She's kind of a, she's kind of a deep thinker as much as she has her own pride and, um, uh, and yeah, spiritual pride a little bit to wrestle with intellectual pride. Um, but she, she takes this in and she's struck by this idea of being a temple of the Holy ghost. Um, so anyways, as the story goes on, these two older girls, they go off to the circus with a couple of boys and, um, they come back and they tell her a story about this tent that they went into, um, where there was a, they separated the men and the women. Um, and the stage was like, uh, could see both sides, but the men and women were separated from each other. So, uh, and the, the, the thing to see was this freak who was a hermaphrodite. Um, and so the, the girls come back, the older girls come back telling the story of this hermaphrodite who, who says on the stage, this is the way God made me to be. And I ain't disputing his way. And she talks about how, um, or the hermaphrodite, uh, woman is talking about how this is what this is just who God created me to be. And I've accepted it. I've accepted God's will. And, um, and so, uh, the, the little girl is, is processing this. And, um, and then a little bit later, she, uh, she imagines it again, 
Um, I think she goes in with her mother to pray um, in a chapel, and she's imagining again. Because um, yeah, they're dropping off the girls at school. Right, they drop the girls off back at the convent, um, and she's she has this um, this vision again. She goes into the chapel, and um, and she sees uh, she sees the monstrance, and the, she she sees the Eucharist and the body of Christ, and she has this um, vision in her head of of the hermaphrodite again saying not only this is the way God made me but saying I am a temple of the Holy Ghost and so it's it it strikes me because of the the transformation of this little girl from her pride um, and she's precocious there are, you know there are a lot of things that are innocent about innocent and and sinful about her pride at the beginning but um, but the thing that transforms her is being in the presence of Christ. And, um, I mean, you guys would appreciate this probably more than I, even more than I would, but especially being in the presence of the Eucharist. Um, so she sees Jesus and has a new understanding that every person is a temple of the Holy ghost and her pride falls away. And she, and it ends with this beautiful description of the setting, comparing the setting sun to, um, to the Eucharist that she saw held up. But, um, yeah, I think I resonate with her pride. I resonate with her struggle for humility. Um, and that the thing that ultimately transforms her is being in the presence of Jesus. And knowing that he sees everyone um, the same. You know, everyone has yes. value and is good in his eyes. Yes, and that there's a beauty in submitting to who God made you to be. Even the hermaphrodite probably understands uh, what it is to be an image bearer of Jesus more than Temple 1, Temple 2, and the little girl. Um, but, uh, so anyways, the, the, the paragraph that I love, uh, well, I guess the whole, the whole, um, last page, there's some, there's so much contained in like the final page of all of Flannery's stories. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can just be kind of trucking along wondering what's going to hit you. And then, wow. Which is exactly what happens to the characters in the story too. They're just trucking along and then boom. And bam. Yeah. I was going to read a paragraph from here. Are you going to read the one? That starts with, you'd think she had to catch a train. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Read that. It's so good. Yeah. You'd think she had to catch a train. She continued in the same ugly vein as they entered the chapel where the sisters were kneeling on one side and the girls all in brown uniforms on the other. The chapel smelled of incense. It was light green and gold, a series of spring arches that ended with the one over the altar where the priest was kneeling in front of the monstrance bowed low. A small boy in a surplice was standing behind him, swinging the censer. The child knelt down between her mother and the nun, and they were well into the tantum ergo before her ugly thoughts stopped, and she began to realize that she was in the presence of God. Help me not to be so mean, she said. Mechan- she began mechanically. Help me not to give, so- give her so much sass. Help me not to talk like I do. Um, her mind began to get quiet and then empty. But when the priest raised the monstrance with the host, shining ivory, uh, shining ivory colored in the center of it, she was thinking of the tent at the fair that had the freak in it. The freak was saying, I don't dispute it. This is the way he wanted me to be. As they were leaving the convent door, the big nun swooped down on her mischievously and nearly smothered her in the black habit, mashing the side of her face into the crucifix hitched onto her belt and then holding her off and looking at her with, the little, peri- with little periwinkle eyes. Um, 
I'll just finish the page. <laughs> On the way home, she and her mother sat in the back, and Alonzo drove by, drove by himself in the front. The child observed three folds of fat in the back of his neck and noted that his ears were pointed almost like a pig's. Her mother, making conversation, asked him if he'd gone to the fair. Gone, he said, and never missed a thing, and it was good I'd gone when I did, because they ain't going to have it next week like they said they was. Why, asked her mother. They shut it down, he said. Some of the preachers from town gone out and inspected it and got the police to shut it down. Her mother let the conversation drop, and the child's round face was lost in thought. She turned it towards the window and looked over out of a stretch of pasture land that rose and fell with a gathering greenness until it touched the dark woods. The sun was a huge red ball, like an elevated host drenched in blood, and when it sank out of sight, it left a line in the sky like a red clay road hanging over the trees. I get shivers what? as I love, you read that. Amazing, oh, yeah. amazing. And I love I just I, love the Well, I just the sweetness of her yeah. of this of this change in this girl. I think it's a great example of her theme of childlike faith, Flannery's, um, and self-righteousness. Because we even have these preachers who shut down the circus because they think they know what's up. And that's uh, that was the, you know, the catalyst for her 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 experience of grace. Um, but yeah, the, the theme of childlike faith shows up again and again, and especially in the the short story that I'm going to mention, which is The Lame Shall Enter First. And that one is about a man named Shepard who is um, lives alone with his son, Norton. Um, there, His wife slash Norton's mother has died recently, I guess in the past year. And um, Shepard counsels young homeless boys who live... Um, either on the streets or in a, in a boy's home. And one of them is a boy named Rufus um, who has a club foot and um, has never really had it taken care of um, from a medical standpoint or been given like a proper shoe for it. So Shepard takes him under his wing and all the while really pretty much ignoring his son Norton and not taking care of him even to the point of not providing groceries for him to eat. And just pushing aside his grief over his mother, saying that he should have gotten over it already. All the while, though, convincing himself that he's a really good person because he's looking out for Rufus. Right. As Rufus said, he thinks he's Jesus Christ. Yeah. So there's this, like, really self-righteous element Hugely. to his yeah. behavior. Yeah. And then you've got Norton, who's got this childlike faith. And you've got Rufus, who's, at first, a difficult character to figure out because it seems like he should be the one that we point fingers at um, when, in the end, it's Shepard who's, who's completely out of touch with the the supernatural despite his name yeah because he is named you mean as shepherd yeah good shepherd yeah um and so i think this story shows the the childlike faith of the boy norton who once he learns about heaven and hell believes that his mother is in heaven and wants to go see her and um and who's just like so sweet to his father even though his father is so terrible to him but it also shows the the theme that Flannery often brings up, which is um, the the problems with modernism and how we and scientism. Yeah, how we look just to science, and because Shepard he he's so excited about the space age, and he wants to introduce Rufus to the universe and what's out there beyond us, or what's so small that we can't even see it. And there's this one part where he says that he wants to um, show Rufus that we can penetrate, you know, the farthest depths of the universe. And that just shows his pride there that he thinks we can answer every question and science can answer everything for us. And he hates Rufus. He hates a part of Rufus, which is the part of him that believes in the Bible and believes in heaven and hell and introduces this to his son, Norton. 
And there's one scene when they are eating breakfast or a meal together. And I think it's dinner. And um, Rufus is bothering Shepard with his talk about the Bible. He's introduced Norton to that. And um, and Shepard just says, told, tells him to sit down and eat his food. And Rufus takes a bite out of the Bible and starts chewing the, the, paper, the yeah. paper. And he says, I'm like Ezekiel. I've eaten it. And I don't need any of your stuff. And I've, I've eaten the word. <laughs> yeah, I've eaten the word. Um, so you can see some of Flannery's Catholicism coming through yeah, there. Yeah, the Eucharistic overtones there. that It's to be consumed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so ultimately, you if you're you know kind of weighing the different moralities of the characters, Rufus comes out as as higher up on Flannery's scale than than Shepard, who just has no sense of what's beyond our human capacities. And yet Rufus is not he's not doing good things, right? No, like he, he's breaking he, the law. He's lying. Right. Shepard keeps standing up for him and bailing him out with the cops when they arrest him for, you know, being a, a rabble rouser. Yeah. You know? And Rufus keeps lying to him. Right. Uh, and, and yet, yet the lame enter first. Right. And. And Rufus is, is, is that he is morally superior to Shepard who ultimately does not reach his moment of grace until it's too late. Um, and the, the final scene is just heartbreaking. Yeah. What happens? Uh, so don't cry. <laughs> so, uh, Shepard has introduced Rufus through a telescope to the universe and he set up this telescope in the attic and Rufus doesn't care about it, but Norton is obsessed with it. He loves it. And he wants to find his mother by looking through the telescope. Um, and so he, and he even tells Shepard at one point that he found his mother. That yeah. He can see her with the and telescope. Shepard just doesn't even care. Dismisses he, it. He doesn't care at all. Um, and he doesn't care that, that Norton's taken interest in this even. And, and so at the end, when Shepard has finally given up on Rufus, who's run away and he realizes he can't do any good for him and he just needs to focus on his son, he goes up to the attic and sees that his son, um, I guess has either committed suicide or, or accidentally, the, yeah. yeah, trying to get to his mother. He's just there hanging in the attic. Um, and I, I don't think it's entirely clear whether he committed suicide in an effort to be with his mother or whether he was just, he just accidentally died. Yeah, and, I guess I guess that is. So, I mean, I read it as intentional, but I guess it is open to yeah, interpretation. It was yeah. definitely intentional that he was trying to reach his mother. Yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, um, but I just think it showcases so much of her talent and her the themes that she tries to really hit home throughout her stories. Yeah, I think in some ways, you know, Flannery is a literary saint for the modern age because one of the, if not the central idea of almost every single one of these short stories is that the cardinal most fundamental sin of all human activity is pride. And, you know, despite the fact that Rufus is, you know, going out and robbing stores and getting arrested for it, it's Rufus who has this, you know, legitimately childlike faith who who reads about how Ezekiel eats the word and then he's like, I'm eating the Bible, right? So I And who embraces his club foot. Right. It is Shepherd, on the other hand, who has this, you know, this just ridiculous ill-conceived pride that he is as rufus says you know he thinks he's jesus christ uh he thinks he's such a good man just taking care of the person or i mean name anybody else in any of these stories who think they have it all figured out uh and the fundamental lesson is that they don't for some of them realize it you know they're hit literally in the head with a book like ruby turpin and revelation um or more metaphorically uh, like your protagonist in Temple of the Holy Ghost, Elena. But I think that's the interesting thing that they all 
all of the sort of villains in her stories struggle with this fundamental sin of pride. And I say that she's a literary saint for our age because I think that's the fundamental sin of our age. You know, people are unable to talk to each other or engage with their neighbor because they're so convinced of their own rectitude superiority. and superiority. Uh, and that's a, that's a really big problem. Yeah. You know, I think one of the other things that is, that his home about Flannery is that um, it takes, there's, I, there's of course the theme of, of grace and how, um, how violent or, um, or disturbing grace can be. Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. That's that's a key theme. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I'm, I just resonate with it so deeply that sometimes there is grace even in our sin when a certain sin reveals to us the deeper sin of our pride. Um, and I think that that happens over and over. Yeah, well, and her characters, if they don't let it, then it usually kills them. But Well, yeah, uh, no, that's right. I mean, I'm thinking of Greenleaf, which was, I think, the second one that we read, or close to it, Sally. And Greenleaf is really interesting, because just to cut to the chase, uh, Mrs. Greenleaf is super... Um, wait, is her name Greenleaf? No, no. No, no she's no. Mrs. May. Yeah, sorry. Greenleaf Mrs. is her, um, like, her yeah, worker yeah, yeah. on the, her farm. The, the good guy, really. Yeah. <laughs> but so Mrs. May struggles with this pride throughout, and this moral superiority and bosses around Mr. Greenleaf and thinks ill of Mrs. Greenleaf despite her simple faith, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because she's a, you know, dirty simpleton, basically. Jesus loving. Yeah. yeah. So Mrs. May, at the end of the story, is literally gored in the side by a bull. Uh, and she dies, you know, having been gored in the side. Perhaps one might suggest, like, Jesus is pierced on the side. And in the, in the side. Yeah, in the heart while he's on the cross. But in like a loving, like almost uh, romantic embrace. Yeah, so there's the there's kind of like as she dies, she sort of embraces the bull. Uh, at, that and the has, bull's that head is in her, her lap. Yeah, it's really, really it's like interesting. Very, these the romantic like Romeo and Juliet overtone throughout the whole <laughs> yeah. story. It's very fascinating. And so that's the, just to your point, Elena, you know, she did not, you know, consent to the grace in that way. She didn't sort of come to it of her, of her own volition, but it came for her. Yeah. And it delivered her despite her, her, you know, best, uh, her efforts to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Have we flannery'd enough? I think we have. Should we still, I, I just feel like I could keep going. So you should just cut it off because I could talk about her forever. Well, let's do this. How about, um, how about we each give one story besides when we already talked about that someone should read if they want to just get a good example of Flannery O'Connor. I would, I'll start and I'll say Revelation is good. Um, I think Revelation's, uh, one, it's pretty short, so you can read it in a sitting, uh, but lots of imagery. It also is, I think, pretty on the nose. Um, the end of it, it's, it's just a great example of what we're talking about. There's the sort of morally superior person who's really prideful. Yeah. There's the moment of sort of dark vi- grace. violent or yeah. dark grace. And then there's the revelation at the end that has some of the beautiful kind of uh, borderline poetic prose from O'Connor that illustrates exactly what that protagonist now understands having been having encountered that that violent grace. So I would say revelation is a good one. What do you think, Elena? I think a good man is hard to find is pretty great introduction to Flannery. It was uh, the title of one of the 
her first collection of short stories, I believe that yep. was published. And, um, there's a lot more energy in it. Um, it feels like it, some of her other stories feel like they jump from scene to scene sometimes. Um, and this one feels a little bit, there's a little bit more continuity from beginning to end. So it feels a little bit more like, um, like, a. uh, I don't know, a little bit more concise as a narrative, maybe. Um, so I would say that's probably an easy introduction to her. But yes, very jarring and very dramatic. <laughs> you know, that was the first introduction to her stories. When I was in college, I had a professor who introduced us to O'Connor, but only through that story. <clears throat> and I read it and I just remember thinking, what? Who in the world is this person? Yeah. And what is this bizarre story? That I just <laughs> what is she read? trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure my professor did a good job at sort of illuminating that for me, but I don't, I don't recall it or it went over my head if he did. You know? That's the way it was for me. Freshman I blame year of college, myself, not him. I read so. The Violent Bears Away and I don't really understand it. But now that I've read the short story that it was based upon, I want to read the novel Wait, again. Wait, which short story was based on? Uh, you Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Francis Tarwater and his grandfather and his uncle Raber, they are all in it. So, um, but I would say um, maybe Good Country People. That is a good one. It's a pretty um, oh, kind yeah, of clear storyline. And um, the dark grace comes not from a person who you would think of as being humble and childlike faith and beautiful, but someone who's actually worse than the main character. Yeah. I was listening to a, uh, to a podcast um, the other day. There was a Dominican priest who was talking about that story and the way he captured it in, you know, a sentence was, it was perfect. There's this person who embraces this nihilism and then another person comes along and undermines her nihilism with, with an, an even, even deeper, deeper nihilism. nihilism. Yeah. It's such a perfect way yeah. to capture what wow. happens in that story. And it's so true. It's perfect. It's so true. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, how many times have, have you seen that too? I mean, I think that's something that happens in real life, even if, you know, if it's not quite as jarring as it is or as evident as it is in that story. Right. Really remarkable. Um, okay. So we're at 38 minutes. Maybe we should just table our rewatch lesson for another night and call this one a Flannery O'Connor episode. Sure. Okay. So we'll do that. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll do our read, watch, listen. Then, Elena, you're welcome to join us for that if you'd like to. We'd love to hear your recommendations. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so we'll just plan on that. The three of us will reconvene in two weeks for read, watch, listen. Uh, send us what you think we missed or what you liked. Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also go to vernacularpodcast.com and listen to all of our other fantastic podcasts. Until then, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. <laughs>